invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We'll be in Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to look together at verses 4 through 7. Hard to believe this is the, this is the last Sunday of 2020. So we should be shouting, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we made it. Uh, well, last week, when we looked at uh, Luke chapter, we looked at Luke chapter uh, two. I told you that we were going into the to the inner sanctum of Christmas, sort of the, the holy of holies, looking into the manger and seeing the true nature of who Jesus is. And we talked about how Jesus is fully God, fully man. That he is one person with two complete natures. His nature is God and then his full and complete human nature that are united in his one person. And that he's son of God and he's son of Mary and he's the son of man from heaven. And the one prophesied in Isaiah, we talked about these things and it got into some deep waters and I have bad news. <laughs> We're in deep water again this week. <laughs> But this is going to be good. Galatians chapter 4, we are going to look now at what? We're going to sort of pull back the curtain of time and look into eternity past and see God plan Christmas. To look at the eternal plan that is behind the first coming of Christ. So I'm going to ask you if you'll stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. And we'll read Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. This is God's holy word for us, His people. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's holy word for us as people. Father, we ask that you would bless now the reading and especially the preaching of your holy, powerful, all-sufficient word. That you would write its truths deep upon our hearts. That you would enlighten our minds. That you would change our hearts. That you would move our wills. That you would conform us into the image of your Son. Lord, as we peel back the curtain and look into eternity past and we ponder these things together this morning that you would pray that you would give us a glimpse of your glory the glory of your saving purposes for us your people that we would worship you through this scripture and that you would change us and take us from this place in awe of who you are and what you've done for us we ask it in Jesus name amen yeah, maybe seated. It's 
in the liturgical tradition of the church, Christmas is the season of the Christian year that begins on Christmas Day and ends with Epiphany on January 6th. And as you probably know, that's where we get the 12 days of Christmas. Now this is the season where we celebrate the time when God gave us the gift of His Son. And we commemorate God's gift by giving presents to one another. And so a couple days ago on Christmas morning when you gave and received presents, what you were doing there was an imitation of what God did for us. When we give and receive gifts, we are to do so as an act of joyful worship to God, knowing what it points to, what it represents. We're imitating God, reenacting, as it were, His most gracious gift to us on that first Christmas. In our passage this morning, the gift of God on the first Christmas is represented to us, it's described as a mission, a Christmas mission. The first coming of Jesus was part of a great plan of salvation, a mission to save God's people, a mission to give God's elect people the gift of eternal life. Now, in theology, this plan, this mission, it has a name. I want to teach you a little bit about Reformed theology this morning as we look at this passage. This saving mission, this Christmas mission, this plan has a name, and it's called the Covenant of Redemption. The Covenant of Redemption. This covenant of redemption involves the whole Trinity. It doesn't just involve the Son, but the Father and the Spirit are taking part actively as well. Each divine person in the Trinity has a role to play. The whole Trinity, all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... Each is fully active and involved in the accomplishment of your salvation. Each is involved in the accomplishment, in the fulfillment of the covenant of redemption. From all eternity, before the creation of the universe, before the foundation of the world, the Trinity crafted this covenant of redemption. The Trinity got together and they designed the eternal salvation of the elect. Each person in the Trinity has a role to play and each person has their own mission to complete. And they have solemnly sworn a binding oath to one another that they will fulfill their role and they will achieve their mission. That's what makes this a covenant. They swear on oath a solemn binding promise. Father, Son, and Spirit, in eternity past when it's just, when it's just them, no creation, and they make this compact, this agreement, this covenant with each other, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get together and we are going to save and elect people for our great glory. 
And everything in creation and everything in redemption is about that plan and it's about God's glory. Everything that the Trinity is about is glorifying God through the redemption of a particular people chosen by God. So each person has a mission in this covenant to complete. And that mission, Christian, is your salvation. Christianity, therefore, this is huge. Christianity is a Trinitarian faith from first to last, mainly because your salvation, Christian, is Trinitarian from beginning to end. It's all about the Trinity. God is the Trinity. We must never forget that. And Christmas is a great time to remember that. Because the Father sends the Son. And then comes the Holy Spirit. And that brings us back to Galatians 4. So with that introduction, here in Galatians 4, we get a glimpse of this mission. In the first coming of Christ. We see that the Trinity is on a Christmas mission. The Father sends the Son to accomplish our redemption. Then the Father sends the Spirit to apply that redemption purchased by the Son to us. And the result is that we are no longer slaves. We are now children of God and heirs of the eternal glory of God as His free gift to us. When we look through Christmas back into the eternal counsels of God, this is what we see. And a powerful passage like Galatians 4 helps us to peer back into eternity past and see the plan of God for our salvation. This is both the meaning and the mission of Christmas, and it's all rooted in this covenant of redemption. So, let's look at the passage. We're going to see three points this morning. We're going to spend most of the time on the first, and then we're going to conclude briefly with a couple of comments about the last, the last point. So here are our three points this morning. First, the mission of the Son, verses 4 and 5. Second, the mission of the Spirit, verse 6. And finally, mission accomplished, verse 7. So let's dive in. First, the mission of the Son. Let's look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth... God sent forth His Son, born of, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, on this first point, there are four things I want us to see together. First thing this verse says about the mission of the Son. Number one, His coming was in what Paul calls the fullness of time. The fullness of time. And this is a phrase that refers to the fulfillment or completion of a period 
or a season. That word for time there isn't, isn't like the tick-tock on the watch or on the clock. That word for time there is a season, a period. The fulfillment of a particular season or period in God's purpose had been fulfilled. The season of waiting of Advent is over and the time of fulfillment has arrived as Advent gives way to Christmas. The next big epic on God's timetable for the world is about to begin with the coming of Christ. All of history has reached its climax in the birth of Christ. All the events of the world have converged on this one great moment in this little sleepy town in Bethlehem. God has been preparing this world to receive the promised one. And now the time has come. The fullness of time. We might say the time was ripe. It was ready. The time was fully ripe, fully prepared, ready. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the centerpiece of history. He's the thing, the person, the one who's at that climax. He's the one who is at the pinnacle of the fullness of time. The centerpiece of history, the one who defines history. The one who gives history its meaning and purpose. That's the first thing to see here. It's the fullness of time. Second, the son was sent before he was born. Now that's interesting. If I send Bill to go get me a, a glass of water, I'm not, I got some. Don't worry. But if I were to say, Bill, go get me some water. That may, Bill exists. There he sits. And it'd be hard for me to send Bill before Bill got in the room. If, if I was like, okay, now Bill. Okay, Bill's not there. God sends Jesus before the manger. Before Jesus is even born, God has already sent him. Look, look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. God sends the Son before He was born. Being born was part of what He was sent to do. This means that the birth of the Son was part of His mission. The birth of Jesus was part of the mission. God sent the Son to be born of a virgin. The sending happened before Jesus existed. But not before God the Son existed. You see, God the Son is one of the Trinity. He's eternal. He's always existed. The Trinity have always existed together. So this sending happened to the pre-incarnate Jesus, the Son of God in eternity past. The sending happened back in the covenant of redemption. Jesus pre-existed His birth. God sent His eternal divine Son to become flesh and be born of Mary. The sending happened first. 
And being born was part of what he was sent to do. The Son of God did not come into existence in Bethlehem's manger. He always existed. But in that manger is when he became flesh for us and our salvation. So number one was the fullness of time. Jesus is at the climax of history. Number two, the Son was sent before He was born because He pre-existed His birth as the eternal God. Third, the Son was born under the Old Covenant. Notice what it says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman... Next, born under the law. Born under the law. And that word law there is pointing you back to the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai from the book of Exodus. It's pointing you back to the Old Covenant or Old Testament. So here's an interesting question for you. Was Jesus a Christian? Hmm. Was Jesus' mom a Christian? It's a funny thing about founders of religious movements. Like, you know, was Muhammad a Muslim? Well, depends on what it means. If Muslim means a follower of Muhammad then Muhammad really couldn't have been a follower of Muhammad because he was Muhammad. So, Jesus, you know, was he a Christian? Was, was Jesus a follower of Christ? <laughs> he was Christ. Jesus' mom was Jewish. Jesus was born and raised and lived Not under the New Covenant. Even though he's in the New Testament, it's still Old Testament time. Until the cross and resurrection. Jesus lived as a Jew. His mom was Jewish. Joseph was Jewish. He lived in the Jewish homeland. Jesus was a Jew. He was born into Judaism, born into a Jewish family, raised in a Jewish home. He was Jewish through and through. The mission of the Son included entering into the world of first century Judaism in the land of Israel. Jesus came and he lived under that old covenant, the Old Testament. Because the promise of his coming was made to the people of Israel first and foremost. This is Paul often talks like this in the book of Romans. He says the gospel is to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, to the Gentile. I like how one translation puts it. The gospel is especially for the Jews and equally for the Greeks. Especially for the Jews, but equally for the For the Gentiles like us. Jesus came to fulfill God's promises to his people Israel. So he had to come from the line of David. 
from the family of Abraham through Israel, through Judaism, from the inside of it, not some invader from the outside. And if we lose that Israel dimension, we lose something very, very essential to the earthly historical Jesus. Jesus' mission was to be born under the law of Moses. To be born under that old covenant. Why? So that he could keep that old covenant and fulfill the law and the promises. Where all of us had failed. Where all of Israel had failed. Had broken covenant. Had sinned. He comes... To pick up the broken pieces of that shattered old covenant. And he comes to scoop them all up. Put them back together. To take all of God's promises. And bring them to glorious fulfillment in himself. He was the promised one who would redeem Israel. And through his redemption of Israel. The light of the gospel would go to all the nations. The mission of Jesus does not exclude Israel. It goes through Israel. This is the role of the Son as the Jewish Messiah. He's born under the Old Covenant to keep and fulfill it for us and in our place. To fulfill all those promises God made so that we could be His people. So that we could be included in His people. That's number three. Fourth thing under this first main point. The ultimate purpose of the Messiah was to redeem his people. Look, this is verse five. Moving from verse four now into verse five. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? Verse five. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is why it's called the covenant of redemption because the son was sent, there's the mission. What was he sent to do? To redeem. By being born under the law, he was sent to redeem. His mission was to redeem those who were under that law. And what does that mean to be under the law? To be under the law. What does that mean? It means to be under the burden, under the penalty, under the curse of that law because of our sin, our covenant breaking. And that's ultimately what sin is. It is unfaithfulness to our covenant Lord, covenant breaking, violating God's law. We broke the law and we were languishing under the burden and penalty and curse of our lawlessness. If you look back in chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 10 through 13, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. All things, not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole thing. 
Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 11, Galatians 3.11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather the one who does them shall live by them. None of us have done them. And none of us have life. We're under the curse. But verse 13 is the heart of the gospel. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. In our behalf. In our place. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ hung upon the cross. Bearing our curse in our place. He bears our curse in our place and fulfills the law in our behalf. So that we might go free. This is the ultimate point of the covenant of redemption. And the result of this great redemption is our adoption by God the Father as His sons and as His daughters. Did you notice that? Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ was sent on a Christmas mission. He was sent on a mission to accomplish your redemption so that you could find an eternal home in the family of God. This is the mission of the Son. Second main point this morning. That's the mission of the Son in verses 4 and 5. Let's look now in verse 6 at the mission of the Holy Spirit. All three persons have a mission. We've seen the Son's mission and how central it is. He has to come and accomplish our redemption. But as we move from verse 5 into verse 6, we see that the Spirit has a mission too. And His mission is to take that redemption Christ accomplished and to make sure it gets to you. To apply that redemption to you as one of God the Father's elect. So look at verse 6. And because you are sons by adoption, verse 5, you've been adopted as sons. In verse 5 and verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father. So the Father adopts His people and then He sends, there's that sending word, that mission word, He sends the Spirit to take that adoption that just kind of sounds very like, you know, hit the gavel like you are now a son or, you know, not guilty, you may go free. That just sounds kind of like static and cold and in courtroom. And he takes that sort of judicial ruling, you are now an adopted child. He sends his spirit to take that reality, that fact, and to make it come alive deep down in here. So that now it's a living, daily experience of being God's child. Not just in the abstract, but a real experience on the inside. The spirit is sent to take that reality Christ purchased, your adoption as God's child... 
and to write it on your heart and to make it come alive. So I just want to say two things about the Spirit's mission here. Number one, and I've already alluded to this, notice God sends the Spirit just as He sent the Son. And here, bear with me for a second, but this is, this is crucial for our faith. This is crucial for us understanding who God really is. This is where we get probably our deepest peak into the Trinity this morning. Okay, so adjust yourself in your seat. God sends the Spirit just as He sent the Son. This is why God the Father is the first person of the Trinity. We talk about this. You ever notice that? First person of the Trinity. Christ is the second person of the Trinity. The Spirit's the third person of the Trinity. Why why is it always that order? First, second, third. Why is there even an order at all in the Trinity? God sends the Spirit just as He sent the Son. And this is why the Father is the first person of the Trinity. It's because the Father always does the sending. And the other two are always sent. Nobody ever sends the Father to do anything. The Father is all-time sender. The other two never send Him. The Son is the second person of the Trinity because the Spirit is called in verse 6 the Spirit of God's Son. God sends His Son and then He sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Not the other way around. And in the Gospel of John, it's both the Father and the Son who send the Spirit. The Spirit never sends anybody. So this is where the order of the persons come from. The Father is first, the Son is second, the Spirit is third. The Father always sends. The Son is both sent and a sender. And the Spirit is always sent. Father sends the Son. Father and Son send the Spirit. Spirit sends nobody. And Father never gets sent by anybody. And that's where the order comes from. Here's the key. The missions of the persons in the Trinity tell us about the nature of the Trinity and how the persons relate to each other. So here's a, here's a sentence for your for here's a here's a sentence to memorize, okay? You ready? The missions reveal the relations. The missions reveal the relations. The missions of the persons tell us about how the persons relate to each other. The role and mission of each person in the covenant of redemption is based on how the persons naturally relate to each other. Okay, seminary lecture over. Back to normal human preaching. So crucial though that we get that. In the covenant of redemption, this shows us something about who God is, and it tells us why Father, Son, and Spirit are first, second, and third persons of the Trinity. This is an insight into who God is from all eternity. Now, second thing I want to say, final thing I want to say about this second point. 
the mission of the Spirit. The first is that God indeed sends the Spirit just like He sent the Son. The Father has a mission for the Son and He has a mission for the Spirit. And now, second point, what is the Spirit's mission? The Spirit's mission, very simply, is to apply redemption. Verse 6 again. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit applies redemption to us by coming into our hearts. He unites us to Christ. He connects us to the sonship of Jesus. And He puts us in God's family. And that tells us that sonship, being a child of God, is at the heart of what salvation really is. Salvation is not simply a matter of having your sins forgiven. Although that's huge and vital and you can't go to heaven unless that happens. That's not the ultimate point. It's not simply about forgiveness. It's not simply about all the other things that we talk about like sanctification and overcoming sin and, and, and praying and being a good Christian. Like, those things are key, they're important, but they're not the ultimate point. What's the ultimate thing that God wants you to have as a result of this covenant of redemption? He wants you to participate in the Son's relationship to His Father. He wants to give you a taste, a share, an eternal portion, as much as your finite human being can contain, of just what it's like for Jesus to be the Son of God, the Son of the Father. It isn't just a static status change before God. It's not nearly that bland. Sonship is something living and active in our hearts. We feel an intimate connection to the Father and we relate to Him as His true children. Christian, you become by the Spirit what Christ is by nature. A child of God. The mission of the Spirit is to give you that share in the Son's relationship to the Father. Salvation is all about life in the Trinity. Life in the Trinity is the essence of salvation. It's the ultimate goal. It's the highest good. It's the final purpose of the covenant of redemption. Christ has always been in perfect, loving communion with the Father, with infinite joy that lasts forever, and He wants to give you a taste of what's that like. Wants to give you a taste of what that's like. And now we'll conclude then with the, just a comment about the last point. We've seen the mission of the Son to accomplish redemption. We've seen number two, the mission of the Spirit to apply it. And then we'll conclude with a word about mission accomplished in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. So you are no longer a slave but a son... And if a son, then an heir through God. This is what mission accomplished looks like. It looks like, it feels like, verse 7, it's freedom.
Mission accomplished means your slavery to sin, to death, to corruption, your bondage to the devil, to the world, to the grave. It's over. It's finished. Slavery is over. Slavery to sin, over. Slavery to death, finished. Captivity under the law, no more. You are a child, a free child of the living God. You are an heir of eternal glory. And that's why it keeps saying son. Not because it's trying to exclude girls, women. It says son because in the ancient world the son is the one who inherits from the father. And this text says sonship the right of being the heir of all of God's glory applies to the men and the women. All of us are heirs together of God's eternal glory. And this is the gift of Christmas. This is what Christ came to give us. He came to adopt us into the family of God. He came to make us one with Himself, to give us His Spirit so that we could know ourselves forgiven and free children of God. That we could have a foretaste now of that eternal life in the Trinity that is to come. Where you will have fullness of joy that lasts forever in the face of your Savior. Which you will see with your own eyes. Oh, that's a glorious day coming. And the coming in Christmas, that first coming, reminds us to look forward to that glorious second coming and the promise that it has for us. And in the meantime, we get to live as the free children of God. Heirs marching toward Zion to receive the promise. March on, Christian. March on. The inheritance is yours. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have made us your own. That there was absolutely nothing you left undone in our salvation. It has been fully accomplished. It is being applied to us now and worked out progressively through our lives as we walk with you. As we get to experience the freedom and joy of being a forgiven, saved child of the Lord of all things. Father, I pray that you would help us to take the glimpse, the little bitty glimpse that we've had of you today in your eternal majesty, as deep and mysterious as it is, and that you would use it to help us be in awe of you. That you would just keep us in awe of your glory, of your eternal wisdom, of your power to accomplish your plan perfectly, and give us the confidence that you are working out that plan right now in our lives in our families, in this world. Give us the courage to continue to march on with you boldly towards our heavenly city that we might receive the inheritance. And may we give you all the thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.